Hello and welcome to Health and Fitness. I'm your host, David Hollywood. Coming up on this week's show, you and I are going to learn a huge amount about rare diseases and how they're treated across the Midlands and around the country. A new national rare disease plan is being developed and you'll meet one of the key stakeholders from the patient forum that's been devised to inform the plan. We're looking at the sale of alcohol bill and what concerns are being voiced about potential later licensing hours for pubs and nightclubs. And we check in with the new Offaly Camogie manager on the start of the intercounty season and we find out why they're cycling and spinning into spring. If you've missed an episode of Health and Fitness, you can get us in the podcast section of midlands103.com, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. If you have a story you want featured on the programme, email sport at midlands103.com or text us on 083 30 10 103. On Health and Fitness this evening, we are talking about rare diseases. How rare are rare diseases in this country? What we're talking about is the likes of cystic fibrosis. There's many cancers, Huntington's disease. In in actual fact, one in 17 people in the country are affected by rare diseases. It amounts to about 300,000 people. And as I heard Dennis Nocton, uh, Galway Roscommon Independent TD, uh, recently say that rare diseases are collectively common. And it's um, with those thoughts in mind that we move our focus to the patient forum, which is going to be set up to support the development of a national rare disease plan. I'm very glad uh, to say that CEO from Rare Disease Ireland, uh, Vicky McGrath, joins us on the programme uh, this evening. Vicky, thanks so much for taking our call today. Thank you very much, David, for inviting me along. So the patient forum is going to be a consultative process involving many of the stakeholders in terms of rare disease in this country. You might talk us through what its purpose is and, and what you expect the practical positive outcomes t- uh, to be from it. Uh, yeah, so um, I guess back in December, the minister announced the formation of what's called the steering group. So that's, I guess, uh, people from across the HSE, from the department, from uh, research um, and from patient organisations. And there are also two patient advocates uh, on that steering group. But really, the work of the steering group um, needs to be informed by the lived experience, by people who are out in the community that are living with rare diseases or caring for people living with rare diseases diseases. Um, you know, there's absolutely no point in us uh, developing a strategy that just doesn't meet the needs of people. And so what has been critical and uh, really driven from the minister the whole way down through the department, through the HSE, from the patient organisations, is we really need to hear the patient voice. We want it loud and clear uh, to inform our discussions and to make sure that any decisions that are made will uh, meet the needs of, of people living with rare diseases. We can't guarantee that we will deliver everything in this strategy, but what we do want to make sure is that what we do deliver will affect change on the ground. One of the complaints that we get is that maybe some um, you know, activities that go on in the background don't deliver on the ground for people. You don't feel it um, you know, in, in your home or with your family or with your loved one, uh, that you don't feel this change. And we want to make sure that what we do now with this strategy uh, that's in development now, that, that it will affect change on the ground for people. You've underlined and and highlighted a particular point that I find interesting is that so much work and effort goes into developing these plans as the previous one did. But then by the same token, all of that work and effort sometimes isn't tangible for those on the receiving end of of the plans. How complex and uh, how difficult is it to devise uh, these plans considering all of the many different dynamics? 
devising a plan is pretty straightforward, I'd have to say. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, I know the people in the room will do a, a wonderful job of divine, uh, divining a plan or, or, you know, creating a plan. It is actually the implementation that yeah. is the really, really hard part. You know, there is the difficulty around getting resources, you know, financial resources, and that will always be a challenge no matter what. But uh, you know, I think really it's um, I used to work with a guy who used to you know, say it's the human condition. It's life's rich tapestry. It's all of the people that go together to drive change, to deliver a service. And, you know, a healthcare service is a behemoth of people. And we need to make sure that everybody gets aligned and is pushing in the same direction. And that is really the biggest challenge. So the people around the table, um, you know, that will be informed by by the patient's lived experience, um, they, they're not going to be the people that you're seeing next week or next month or next year they 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 are the people that you know we get we that get a lot of i guess bad press because they're the management people but they're the people trying to put in place the pathways and the infrastructure and the wherewithal to allow the nurses and the doctors and the physios and the speech and language therapists all of those people out in the community to deliver their expertise in a way that makes sense uh, for people, um, you know, and in our case, people living with rare diseases, we have seen real success happening in other areas. And there is um, cancer. If you thought back 30 years ago, it was a bit of a, a mess. Mm. Let's be honest about it. And it's transformed today. So we, we have seen that people working in the background, creating, I guess, pathways for change and bringing people along, bringing the workforce along with them does affect change on the ground. And that's what we need to do with rare diseases. Um, there is, I guess, this concept that rare diseases, there's not very many people. Uh, there's actually about 300,000, as you've already said. Uh, they're incredibly complex. Yeah, but a lot, there's a huge amount of overlap. There's a lot of the same needs amongst these people. So if we can group them together and get that 80 or 90% resolved, there will be little bits around the edges that we're, you know, that we will struggle with. But, you know, that's where we look to Europe to bring expertise in, or maybe there is new therapies being developed or new ways of doing diagnosis. And that's what we need. So, you know, our first thing is we need to organize the people to make sure that they're delivering for the community, meeting the needs of people living out in their homes or living in their communities um, and then, you know, wrapping other bits and pieces in around on top of it. So it's really about, I guess, the people in the system all pushing in the same direction and walking in the same direction. And that's no small thing, obviously. In your experience and, and you know, you, you've alluded to the connection there between the patients and, and, and say people do, delivering therapies and then the sort of the management level that that maybe devise and divine these plans in your experience before we went on air there we were chatting briefly about the previous plan from about 10 years ago where um where has things changed or or how is rare disease treatment in ireland how has it developed over the last decade or so um there's probably there's a there's a couple of things I guess. The first thing is that um, we've had to link much more into Europe around rare disease care, and that that's really the nature of rare diseases that expertise is not necessarily available in Ireland. Um, so you know you link to that expertise in Europe. Um, the 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 structures are in place now to allow that linking to happen. So if you're living in the west of Ireland. 
you should be able to go from your GP to the expert centre in Ireland and possibly into an expert centre in Europe. And so those, you know, that that information is available to us now. Is it being used adequately? Probably not. Uh, but those pathways are in theory there and we need to bed them down better. Um, so, so, so I would say, you know, it, it, it's there for the picking for people. It's, it, it's, it's ripened and we should, we need to leverage the information that we have available to us today. There are things around, there's a new, uh, National Rare Diseases Office that came out as a direct result of the last, uh, rare disease plan. Um, and that's a, a huge source of information, best practice and care for both, uh, families, people living with rare diseases and for the healthcare community, for people providing care for the healthcare practitioners, for our consultants things like that. Um, there are models of care as to, you know, how we should organise things like that. Implementation of those is sketchy at best. And that's probably what this new strategy will drive towards. We'll, 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 make, we'll make sure that that happens. So there is, there is progress, I guess. Things have happened. But, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, people have asked, why, are, why do we need something new? If we implemented the old stuff, it would all be great. You know, we, we would have everything that we need. And it's kind of, yeah, but technologies and things have moved on and we need to start thinking about what will it be like in 10 years time when there's more gene therapies and more advanced therapies? How do we make sure that we get them approved and available in Ireland and reimbursed and paid for and things like that? So we need to you know, start kind of like future proofing ourselves a little bit. And we need to give the next generation of, of healthcare providers, the consultants, the managers, the, the hospital managers, the you know, community managers, the regional health, the new uh, health region managers. We need to give them ownership over where this is going in the next 10 years. We can't tell them, you know, we had a plan 10 years ago, you just need to implement it today. You know, you don't get any say in what, what needs to be done or how it needs to be done. So part of this process is even just getting buy-in from people that, yeah, we're still moving in the same direction and getting these people to take ownership and to be, I guess, um, rare diseases is an incredibly exciting cutting edge area of medicine. And the advances in diagnosis and therapies are just amazing. There are still a lot of a, the back of the ranch, as one of my board members would say, still a lot of the back of the ranch needs, you know, care in the community, speech and language, physio, um, those types of services that need to be put in place and need to be uh, bedded down and things like that. But but notwithstanding that, you know, if I was, I guess, a healthcare manager, if I was one of these people that's going into the health regions and seeing the reorganization, I would be saying, who are my complex patients? What can I do to change their lives? You know, who are the children that need extra supports? Who are the adults that need extra supports? Quite simply, you know, we have, I guess, a children's hospital or the children's hospital system as it is right now, um, you know, that does deliver expert care. But but we find that an awful lot of people, when they transition from paediatric care into adult care, there is no consultant available for them. And so if I was out in those communities, I'd be looking at this as being, wow, this is where all the change and all the excitement is going to happen in the next 10 years. I want to be part of that. I want to be somebody that affects that change. We've seen, as I said, how it happened in cancer over the last 20 years. Let's do it for the next group. Because quite simply, you know, we talk, I guess, or, the, the, you know, science speaks about personalized medicine. You know, we're all going to have our very own uh, medicines that do, you know, that cure us or, or, or relieve symptoms and stuff like that. Um, I, but, but personalized medicine, rare diseases are essentially personalized medicine. When you're only treating a handful of people, mm. you haven't, you're looking at maybe their genetic profile or their, their, the environmental impact on their genetic profile and things like that. 
And so, you know, we're heading in that direction and we need to be at the forefront. We need to be at the cutting edge of this. And I would hope that our, uh, I guess, our healthcare providers, our healthcare managers would see that too. I know that if you look at, um, I guess, if one looked over the, the fence at some of the other departments in 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 within the government uh, enterprise uh, research education and research uh, you know uh, higher education and research those are the areas that they're kind of saying our diseases are where it's at and we want to bring everybody else along on that journey to make life better for people with rare diseases would it be fair to say that in delivery of these strategies and plans communication and effective networking um and and talking to the right people who have the right knowledge throughout a a 10 year cycle or whatever it is that that's a crucial part of delivery of health service for rare diseases absolutely uh, you couldn't you couldn't be more simple about it that is the critical piece. You know, the magic of science happens. Somebody somewhere gets a eureka moment. The rest of it is about conversations, is about the human condition, is about people talking about what's challenged over here. How do we make a change? What do we need to do? And, th- and that is absolutely critical. None of this will happen unless we can get people kind of identifying a problem, finding solutions, and that will all work or happen with people conversing with one another. If we live in vacuums, and, and that is probably one of the biggest challenges maybe with the structure of the healthcare system today for people with rare diseases. If you have a rare disease, typically you you might have four or five different medical needs so you might be seeing a cardiologist you might be seeing a respiratory specialist you might be seeing a gi specialist and you know if they're all working in silos the healthcare system isn't working for you as an individual you're the one that's having to try and gather everything and make sure that all the pieces hang together and so it, it is those conversations from the very you know top to the very bottom that it, it works it's integrated and it works together and that only happens with conversations and sharing information sharing best practice rare diseases ireland we're the national alliance for rare disease patient organizations so we don't tend to deal uh, with individuals clearly we get queries and we try and kind of like make sure that people get access to the type of information that they need or point them in the direction of where they can find information and supports but we don't tend as an organization to deal directly with with individuals mm. so our role you know, number one our role is around awareness building awareness making sure that i guess policymakers, people with the purse strings leadership in the hse that they recognize the 300,000 they see this as a group that not alone has uh, large unmet medical needs but also that is is a group deserving of a lot of attention because actually um, they they are the group that's consuming a huge amount of healthcare. There was research done recently around um, uh, children in the in the children's hospitals in 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 Dublin, so Temple Street, Crumlin, and Tala, and over fifty percent of the bed days were taken up by children living with rare diseases. And it's kind of oh, that's a large amount of expenditure over there. We should be organising it and understanding what's happening a little bit better and making sure that we are delivering. And and that's not something that has really happened yet. And that's something that we will we would certainly be pushing for. So so that's uh, very important. Um, and then, uh, you know, as an organisation, so the, the awareness piece is incredibly important. The other piece that we're big about is 
finding those common themes across different diseases. So diagnosis, um, access to genetic services. Uh, if there's medicines coming along, who, you know, how does the reimbursement system work? How do we make sure that what tend to be incredibly expensive medicines for rare diseases, how do we make sure that the state will pay for those? Um, how do we make sure that there is psychological support for people? So we tend as an organisation to be at that kind of like that across all rare diseases, you know, what are those things that we should be advocating for that will benefit most of the rare disease community? We can't say, you know, not everybody has a treatment. In fact, only 5% of rare diseases even have a treatment today. So clearly the work around reimbursement isn't for everybody living with a rare disease, but maybe in 10 years time, that number will be 10 or 15% and that, you know, it's be pushing along. And so what work we have done today to make sure there's a suitable reimbursement system will deliver for patients in the future as well. Um, then outside even of the healthcare system, sadly, I guess the, the title rare diseases tends to make it a very medically focused activity. But actually, there's huge uh, challenges in education, getting access to special needs and uh, assistance and uh, supports in education. Employment. Does your employer know that you have a child living with a rare disease and you might have extra needs in terms of time off? Uh, are you yourself living with a rare disease and you need to go and do, you know, you have extra appointments or you have a, a therapy that you need to be taking every once in a while or th things like that? Um, housing. If you think about it, I'm like when one, you know, there, there's obviously there's the state system for state housing, which is, I guess, a uh a a a finance uh kind of driven you know uh system at the moment can you afford housing or not but you'll find for many people with rare diseases maybe they are doing jobs and maybe they are earning an income uh like 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 healthy people you know maybe, maybe they are that but they can't get access to a mortgage nobody will give them life insurance uh and so you know there are there are challenges like that that we need to kind of like right there's not just the health side of things there's also the living side it's not a small amount of work by the sounds of it vicky it's fun though it's fun <laughs> well yeah it occurs to me you must have to how important is it to care about what you do at an executive role in a, in at a place like rare disease ireland um well uh... You know, I think you you need you need some empathy, but you've also got to just kind of get on with it and try and avoid the politics of it. Mm. Um, you know, it can be very disheartening sometimes. You will uh, see things happening with within the HSE, and I, you know, I, I, this isn't about HSE bashing or anything like that, or or within the department or within the government, and you're just kind of going, oh. Come on, guys, please, let's just move on and move forward, you know, but I, I, and I know that they have different challenges to the ones I have. I'm looking for things to happen tomorrow. Yeah. I want things done now. I want change. I want us to acknowledge where things aren't working. And that isn't always easy, you know, but I don't I don't have the challenges of an enormous workforce that needs to be moved in the right direction. I don't have to deal with with, you know, unions and things like that, that maybe are a little bit more uh, reluctant to make some of the changes that I would say, let's just do it and be gone, done, you know. Um, so so, you know, it, it, but, you know, when you hear from people, and when you see, I guess, things changing, when you hear the likes of the cystic fibrosis story or, or um, you know, when you see, I guess, you know, children, you know, pediatric cancers 
transformed care now over the last 20 years. And they've they've, I guess, gotten a lot of theirs through the through the National Cancer Control Program, a lot of improvements in the care. But you know, what would have been a I guess a terminal diagnosis for many children is no longer. And so, you know, there is you've got to grab for the hope. You've got to see that there are are opportunities out here. Um, you know, there's new gene therapies coming along for for SMA, for example, spinal muscular atrophy, uh, for multiple leukocyte dystrophy, a, 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 a metabolic disorder. You know, these things could could prevent the disease. And it's just wow that's so so amazing and you just got to keep keep that in mind as well you know it's not for everybody it's not going to happen in all of our lifetimes unfortunately but there is hope for the future and we've got to keep pushing at us and for those that don't want to come on the journey uh that you know are are i guess maybe uncomfortable with change in the workplace or you know the, the evolving situations you just got to try and bring them along with you as best you can, you know, and and try and engender a bit of that optimism and spirit. Yeah, well, I think working to take children out of terminal ill health, there's no more noble and energizing kind of motivation that you could have. Vicky, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. The final question is in terms of this um National Rare Disease Plan and the fact that there's this patient forum with a focus on 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 feedback for those who, who are working on the ground how confident are you that this will have a, a tangible effect uh, for people who are are experiencing rare disease, be it through their children, themselves, a relative or a friend or a family member? Um, well, I would have to say um, the chair of the steering group has been very clear. If if their voices are not being heard, if their desires are not being incorporated, then you know, all bets are off. We'll go back to we'll go back to square one and restart the whole thing. Out of the group in the 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 steering group, out of the I don't know maybe fourteen or fifteen, maybe up to sixteen people around the table in the steering group, four of them are coming from the advocacy patient space, and um, none of us are shy about speaking up, and we'll be pretty clear in terms of this doesn't work, this does work. Um, I think what's really important though for you know for people out there in the community living with rare diseases, if they do want to get involved you know there's still opportunities please do sign up submit an expression of interest you can find you can find it on our website rdi.ie there's a link on the home page to the rare disease strategy and you'll see there the link to the ex- expressions of interest and make your voice heard if there's something that you really feel needs to happen uh, you know and it's not for everybody to speak up it's not for everybody to get involved but if there is something that really you know write a letter send in a video uh, leave a voice note Anything, you know, there's an email address there that it all goes to the department and it'll all be collated. And we need to listen and hear and understand and make sure that what we deliver will be delivering for people on the ground. I can't overemphasize the amount of times that I hear this. There's been no change in my life. There's been no change for me. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just not good enough. So this strategy and the, the subsequent implementation plan and implementation of it will have to deliver change on the ground for people that they can noticeably say, yeah, it might not happen in a year, it might not happen in two years, but over the next five years, that definitely the people are saying that's changed. I I, I remember I used to have to, I don't anymore. Yeah, 
Well, we hope, as I think everyone listening uh, would hope, that that's the direction things are going. Uh, Vicky, you've been absolutely fantastic with your time. The very best of luck with everything going forward with Rare Disease Ireland and the Patient Forum and the National Rare Disease Plan. Thanks again for talking to us on Health and Fitness. Thank you, David. The government's sale of alcohol bill is uh, working its way through uh, the process in becoming legislation and it's uh, piqued the interest and more pertinently the concerns of uh, many groups who are coming together uh, to voice their opposition uh, to the content of the bill. An open letter has been released and uh, leading it on the head list of signatories is uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland, Dr Sheila Gilheeney, who joins us on Health and Fitness this evening. Uh, Sheila, thanks very much for joining us on the programme this evening. Thank you, David, for having me on. Not at all. So from Alcohol Action Ireland's perspective, we'll start there. What are your concerns in relation to the sale of alcohol bill? So the proposals that that are coming forward are to increase or to extend our licensing hours for the sale of alcohol. So all pubs and bars and restaurants, which now close at 11.30, will be able to stay open to 12.30. It would be easier for bars to get late extensions to stay open to 2.30 a.m. And nightclubs could stay open to 6 a.m. Now, our concern around this is that we know from all the international evidence that if you increase the availability of alcohol through increased licensing hours or indeed increased numbers of venues, which is another feature of, of this bill, that you increase the overall use of alcohol. And with that, you will see an increase in the level of harm that comes from alcohol. Now, we're already a country that is awash in alcohol. Unfortunately, something like about 1,500 hospital beds are in use today for alcohol-related problems. Four people die actually every day from from alcohol, which is just you know devastating. And if we look at it from a, a family point of view, there's 200,000 children right now living in homes severely impacted by uh, alcohol problems. Now, all of those issues and many, many more, we could include things like mental health. We could look at um, statistics around road deaths. All of these things, these problems will increase with increased availability. And the reason we know that is that we can look at the evidence that's come from other uh, countries who have, have done this, who have increased their licensing hours. And just to you know, pinpoint a few of, of the concerns, hmm. for every one hour extension in, in trading hours, we've seen an increase, you're likely to see an increase of 16% increase in alcohol-related crime a 30% increase in road collisions uh, in rural areas and a 34% increase in alcohol-related injuries needing hospital treatment. So they're they're just three facts that we know from international evidence. Mm. And what we're saying is the government really needs to look at this in more detail. And it's not just you saying it, as we've mentioned a few seconds ago, uh, there's a wide range of uh, bodies and uh, people in senior executive positions in those bodies that have signed uh, this open letter voicing these concerns. And I suppose the broadness of the constituency that are voicing concern speaks to the general harm that alcohol can have on society. So you've got everything uh, from the Children's Rights Alliance to the alcohol uh, groups like Alcohol Action Ireland. Um, there's a, a dental um, representation here. Uh, there's obviously those from Irish Cancer. There, there's mental health. Uh, so there's a huge um, amount of solidarity, I suppose, among many groups that work day in, day out, firefighting the consequences of alcohol consumption. Absolutely, there, there is. You know, And if we were just to pick out a few 
uh, there were, when we look at say domestic violence, uh, for example, yes. and um, when we when we see organisations like Safe Ireland and uh, the National Women's Council of, of Ireland coming out and stating that they are very concerned about this, I think that that really should be speaking to Minister Helen McEntee clearly. This minister has rightly shown a lot of initiative and a lot of interest in trying to reduce domestic violence. So we would be really saying to her, if we have the evidence, if we can see the evidence from other jurisdictions that actually increasing alcohol availability will increase the level of domestic violence and also sexual violence as well, gender-based violence, it's really, really time to look at this again. I'll just point to you know one particular example. In, in Australia, there was a piece of research done there because actually they had reduced their late night opening hours and they found that a two hour reduction in the late night opening led to a 29% decrease in domestic violence. So it's, you know, it works both ways. If you increase alcohol availability, you increase the harms. If you decrease the availability, you decrease the harms. And so all of those, these organizations, and you've named a few of them there, whether we're talking about mental health uh, issue, people, uh, mental health reform, or um, the Irish Co- the College of uh, Psychiatrists in, in Ireland, National Suicide um, Research Foundation, they have all come together to say, we see at, at the coalface, you know, we're providing services, we have concerns here. And what they're calling for is a health impact assessment of the proposals in, in the bill. And what we mean by that is not just getting views, it's not just, you know, well, we think this or this might be good or, or whatever. It's actually putting hard facts and numbers on if we increase licensing hours, how many more doctors do we need? How many more nurses are, are needed? How many more extra services will be needed um, to, to deal with the fallout, say, for example, in domestic violence? How many more ambulances do we need on the roads? How many more guardie do we need? And you need to have concrete answers to those questions and and only when you have those answers I think would it be appropriate for the Oireachtas members to vote on, on these proposals. Sheila, the bill itself has been a long time in the making I believe and uh, obviously there is another side to this story. It's those who have the conviction to pursue its passage through uh, the houses of the Oireachtas and you've given good voice to the concerns that lie behind that. What's the motivation um, to extending opening hours? Is it uh, purely economic? Do you think it's purely focusing on supporting the late night economy as as it's currently constituted in this country? I think it has been billed as as a means to enhance the nighttime economy. Now, all of us are in favour of having a vibrant um, nighttime economy, but the assumption is that you can only have such a vibrancy if you have alcohol alongside it. But that is simply not the case because even as it stands, people are concerned about the level of alcohol use in, 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 in Ireland and they will often talk about the threatening feeling that they get when, when they're out in, in city centres. And that threatening feeling so often will be coming from alcohol and, and alcohol use. So it actually is something that puts people off going out uh, at, at night. So I think there really needs to be a different way of, of looking at this. Now, certainly vested interests, without a doubt, are, are the people who are pushing to have this increase. And we're saying it's fair enough. People want to make money. We absolutely get that. that we're, we're not objecting to, to businesses, you know, to, to, uh, trying, trying to make a living. What we are saying is that if you're going to take um, such a radical change to our licensing laws, you absolutely have to plan for it 
you have to put in the resources for it and you have to say at the end of it all would that be worth it will that actually achieve what we wanted to do in terms of enhancing our, our nighttime offering a large part of what we're talking about is a, a society that has developed and grown up uh, to the modern day uh, very much around the the monolithic existence of of alcohol What's your perspective on what the future holds for Ireland and its relationship with alcohol? In your work, do you see us decoupling ourselves socially and, um, you know, as a society from excessive consumption? Or are you concerned that it's one of these intractable aspects of, of the country's character? Well, actually, there has been improvements over the last number of years. In fact, the, the level of alcohol use um, say in 2022 had, was, was 5% lower than it was before the pandemic and we would say that that is partly as a result of you know some modest measures which the government would have taken through the Public Health Alcohol Act. So these were a set of uh, controls on pricing, for example the introduction of minimum unit pricing and on advertising, some very modest um, uh, restrictions on, on advertising but we do see that they do have an effect on this broad population um, kind of response to, to alcohol and it's government policy as stated through the Department of Health to reduce our alcohol use by 20%. Now that's that's a good target to have. We haven't reached it. We were supposed to reach this by um, back in 19, uh, sorry, back in 2020. We didn't get it but we are moving towards it and that's why it's so frustrating to see another arm of the government through the Department of Justice actually looking to undo that good work that has been done and that progress that is, is being made by really taking this, I would say, quite blinkered view of the sale of alcohol as somehow being essential to our nighttime economy. It's an exciting time of the season in Gaelic Games and that's because the inter-county league seasons have either started or they're just about to start and in the very Camogie Leagues, Offaly are about to take a tentative first step uh, into their campaign and what a game they've got to get things underway. They are against West Meath. David Sullivan is the new Offaly Camogie manager. Uh, David, from your own perspective, uh, heading into the first um, proper competitive fixture uh, for Offaly, it must be an exciting time. Yeah, it's an exciting time. In fairness, the preparations are going really well since uh, after Christmas. We had a couple of weeks there before Christmas where we had a couple of open trials and uh, we cut our panel there just before Christmas. So uh, since after Christmas, we've five or six challenge games played and a lot of work done, gym work and field uh, pitch sessions and stuff. So um, it's great playing all the challenge games and doing all the training, but I suppose nothing beats playing competitive games at Camogie and testing yourselves against other really good teams. So we're really looking forward to the challenge that Westmead will put to us tomorrow and, and hopefully we'll be able to stand up to it and get a, a, a much-deserved uh, victory. Yeah, and we'll talk about the specific challenges that Westmead will bring shortly uh, in our chat here. Uh, what about yourself personally? What's it mean to you to be the uh, the Offaly manager? Yeah, uh, really exciting times, to be honest with you. I suppose the last couple of years haven't been... Um, Exactly brilliant results-wise up above in the senior level, but um, since I suppose we're back down intermediate now and probably back at the level that we need to be to rebuild and stuff like that. So uh, the response of the girls around the county has been absolutely brilliant and, uh, you know, it's given us great hope that there's something to work with there for the next couple of years while we're in charge. And we're really looking forward to maybe driving off the Camogie back to the level where it needs to get to and that's ultimately back up senior and being competitive in the senior grade. But... We have um, a lot of really good teams ahead of us in the Intermediate Championship this year and league. So I suppose our, our full focus will be on 
trying to be competitive in those games, get wins and see where it takes us as the year goes on. There's a challenge in terms of putting together a panel, uh, a, a, a full group of people who are ready and willing to commit. The other challenge of running, say, an inter-county camogie side is is being able to resource its operations because uh, aside from, say, uh, training and home matches, um, you guys are often having to travel and and ultimately the the funding isn't there internally to to drive all of this comfortably um as a consequence uh, you guys have got a fundraiser coming up you might tell us about that yeah well i suppose like like every other intercounty team there is grants available from gpa and different stuff like that that will cover so much of the team's preparations and then you know the rest of that um, preparation then has to be funded by the county board itself so on Saturday, the 2nd of March, we have a spinathon in four different locations, uh, Super Value in Banner, Super Value in Bar, Doolins in the Blue Ball and the uh, Bridge Centre in Tullamore, where there'll be girls on bikes throughout the day um, and we'll be looking for the support of the Offaly people in helping to raise enough funds to keep the girls um, uh, in equipment and food and nutrition and buses and stuff for um, all the games for uh, the rest of the year from underage level right up to intermediate level so we'd be hoping that we'd get a good response from the general public and um, you know the, the girls in this county really deserve their support you know it's been a barren couple of years for Offaly so we're hoping to change that and to change that obviously it's going to cost money and it, it costs a lot of things so we're hoping that the support on the 2nd of March will we can raise enough money to be able to change the way we do things in Offaly and set a good standard that we can follow on for the rest of the years to come if that fundraiser was successful and, say, internal targets were met in terms of the money raised, just how much of a difference can it make to the wider operation of Lee Camogie? Oh, massively. Like, you know, it's extra nutrition for the girls. It's extra recovery sessions in in pools and gyms and stuff like that. It's buses to games. It's it's extra gear. It's all the just the basics and the necessities that's needed to be uh, up there with the likes of the Corks and the Tipperaries and the Kennys and what they get. And we shouldn't be any different in this county. We shouldn't have anything less than what they have or we shouldn't be prepared anything less than what they are either. So I suppose the money there is is, is will be used to, to you know help get up to that level that they're at. And, you know, the more we're able to push to try and get there, you know, the better we will be as a county going forward. But unfortunately, it all costs money. So we are kind of reliant on, you know, good public on the 2nd of March there and uh, and a lot of fundraising. And, and hopefully we'll be taking a lot of money on the day to help push the game on further in the county because it needs us now after the last couple of years. And uh, David, would you be, th- would you be throwing, yourself, uh, throwing your leg over one of these um, uh, bikes yourself in, in aid of the cause? Oh, we will, of course, and all my management team and all players on board, yeah. <laughs> Good man. We, we won't ask the players to do anything that we won't do ourselves, and I suppose that's the key thing, you know, we all have to throw in behind it and make sure it's a success on the day. How are you on a bike? Ah, uh, sure, give it a go anyway. <laughs> I'd be more used to giving out, roaring and shouting out on the sideline <laughs> than I would be anything else, but uh, look, anything that helps the cause and anything that gets the off the girls out there, it, 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 that's the most important thing. Yeah, and... It can really have an effect, I think, on on the person on the street when uh, the county team is performing, uh, especially in and around the areas where you get a lot of representation, particularly in the game of of camogie. Uh, You've probably seen it yourself, just how much of a boost it does give local communities when, as you were saying, just a win or two back to back, all of a sudden the, the, the picture changes. Oh, without doubt. If people want to follow a winning team, that's just the nature of 
or people nowadays, you know, no one wants to be talking about people losing all the time. So I suppose it is key to, at some stage over the next couple of weeks that we do get that first competitive win and we try and back it up then with another one and then all of a sudden you start generating the interest again from the general public and people start talking about what we're doing inside and obviously Camogie are winning games at Camogie again. So the more wins we can get, it kind of raises the profile of the players there as well. So, um, yeah, we'll be hoping on Saturday, please God, that we can get a, a good performance against Westmead and hopefully a win. And if we can get that, then we start generating a bit more interest into our game and we start pushing on from there. Yeah, look, the game was meant to take place in Burr, as far as I'm aware, and it's had to move over to Westmead. That's a disappointing change of venue from Offaly's perspective, literally from home uh, to away in that context. Um, I understand that stuff like pitches um, for the likes of Camogie, it, it's never straightforward and it, it, it's maybe it, it highlights uh, one of the aspects of the game that needs stronger uh, a support, not just from, say, fundraising in the community, but probably uh, the broader piece about the associations merging and all that type of thing. You'd like to see that happen, even for the fact that games can be nailed on at venues and carried out in the right way. Yeah, it's very, very disappointing uh, yesterday evening to realise that we had to give up home advantage. Um, I know we tried in, uh, as much as we could to try and get a pitch around Offaly and stuff like that, but it's disappointing for the girls as well, I suppose, because you know we want if you want to promote the game within your own county, Saturday was a brilliant opportunity to get young kids into bar and you know get girls to see their heroes and the, 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 the now of Offaly Camogie playing and have them go away thinking you know that could be me in 10 or 11 years time so we've we've missed an opportunity in that regard and, and it is bitterly disappointing and um but look it'll steal us as well at the same time you know it's still a pitch and four white lines and stuff whether it's in Borough or Mullingar we still have to do the business anyway so it won't affect our preparation too much for tomorrow but in the long term you know the sooner the merging happens the better because you know t- tomorrow's game we moved to Mullingar is one of many instances of Camogie pitch teams I suppose having to change fixtures because they just can't get pitches or facilities which is very disappointing because I can stand testament to the work that these Offaly girls have put in since um, since January since we come back after Christmas and they're working as hard as any other inter-county team men or female in uh, at the present moment in time so to have give up home advantage tomorrow is, is bitterly disappointing but it won't affect our performance or our mindset anyway we'll travel to Mullingar uh, the same way we would have travelled into Borough and that's with the intention of going all out to try and get the two points and win the game at Camogie. Yeah, you have to go with that perspective and that attitude. St. Lomans GA grounds in Mullingar, two o'clock throw-in tomorrow afternoon and uh, I am, I know that both Offaly and Westmead's uh, panels and, and management would love for absolutely everyone listening to get down there if they can do. Uh, a final uh, question then, David. Thanks very much for talking to us on Health and Fitness this evening. Uh, what is it that you want to see your Offaly players uh, do uh, in terms of a priority when they're on the pitch against Westmeath tomorrow, what do you think will be the winning of the game? Yeah, well, I suppose with the conditions that's in it at the minute and pitches soggy and that, I suppose just a lot of heart and a lot of endeavour and, and and hard work, and that's what's going to win the game tomorrow. And Joe Westmead will be equally as good hurling wise as what we are, but it's the team that's able to put that little extra bit of work in tomorrow, make the extra hooks and blocks, and show that little bit of intent more than the other team to try and win the game will probably get over the line tomorrow so it'll be very close and I can't see an awful lot separating us at the end and I know that they beat us by a point was it last year in the Leinster quarter final so there's very little difference between the two sides so we're expecting a very tough game tomorrow but we just feel if we can bring a work rate there tomorrow and a really good intensity off the ball in terms of our tackling or hooking and blocking we stand every chance after 60 minutes with, with, with a chance of winning the game at Camogie.
Yeah, that's tomorrow afternoon and then in a couple of weeks' time the Spinathon Cyclothon fundraiser for Offaly Camogie taking place in Sexton Supervalue in Banagher, Buckley Supervalue in Bird, Doolan Service Station in Blue Ball and the Bridge Shopping Centre in Tullamore. Uh, that is the 2nd of March on a Saturday and all support there, obviously welcome. David, thanks for your time. The best of luck tomorrow. Thank you very much, David.